Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we just want to celebrate you today. That's our intention. And uh, I, I pray we've done that well. We, we've, remembered, we've remembered Peter and his denial. And, and that we are no better because we've also earned wrath. We've also sinned. And it's created great sorrow in, in us. And we've remembered the reality of the crucifixion and, and Mary, Jesus' mother, being there and, and experiencing that. Her son, her Savior dying for her. And then the reality of the empty tomb, the shock, the incredible shock Mary Magdalene felt when she saw him and the excitement that created in her to tell people People, they could barely believe it unless they saw it with their own eyes. People like Thomas who said, I just, I just got to be able to touch him. It's just, it's too, this is too much. Would you fill us, God, with that same excitement over the reality of the resurrection? Would you help us when we sin and we mess up like Peter? Would you help us see all of life through the lens of the cross that has dealt with our sin forever? Jesus, be with us now as we look at your word, as we consider where you are right now. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. He is risen. He's risen indeed. There's a story told about three fools who uh, die and end up at the gates of heaven. And who's standing there but Peter? Of course, he's always standing there. The guy doesn't get a break. And, uh, and the three fools are standing there, and Peter decides to give them a pop quiz to see if they, they can come in, you know. So he gives them a pop quiz, and, and he says, Can you tell me the meaning of Easter? What's Easter about? And the first fool says, Oh, I know all about that. Uh, Easter is that holiday in, in November where we eat turkey and, and, and we're really thankful for everything we have. And Peter is just shaking his head in disgust like, are you, are you kidding me? And then the second fool talks and says, I know what Easter is. Easter is the holiday where we set up pretty trees and give each other presents and, and, and remember the wise men and the shepherds. And Peter's like, come on, you've got to be kidding me. And then the, uh, he asks the third fool, do you know what Easter is? And the third fool says, oh yes, I, I can tell you all about that. He said, it's, it, it, it's a holiday that happens around the same time as the Jewish Passover. And, and at that time, Jesus was betrayed. And he was betrayed by, by Judas. And, and, and uh, they took him away. The Romans took him away. And, and, and they whipped him. And they condemned him to death. And the people shot to crucify him. They put him up on a cross with nails in his hands and feet. And then they put him in the tomb and rolled the stone. And at that point, Peter's like, he's smiling brightly at, at all this information coming at him. And then the third fool said, and every spring they roll the stone away, and if Jesus comes out and she sees a shadow, there's six more weeks of winter. You know? Um, okay. So, yes. Uh, I'm making two assumptions this morning before I preach. Knowing that... that uh, some folks are here, uh, you're up here maybe vacationing for the weekend. Some folks are here, you do church because that's what you're supposed to do at Easter. But I'm going to make a couple assumptions this morning. Number one, 
uh, you, you would never be that foolish not to know that story. I mean, you're kind of here, and if you do only the Easter thing and the Christmas thing in your church attendance record, um, you kind of know the stories. You've heard it every single year. He, he died on a cross. He was put in a tomb. We believe the tomb is empty. Whether you agree with that, I don't know. But you know the story. That's my first assumption. The second assumption is that we lose power. Maybe that was a bad assumption. Was that you, Jim? All right, all right, all right. Are we all right? Special effects, that's right, that's right. None of our dramas were supposed to have special effects. <laughs> no, they weren't. Okay. That's all right. Forget it. That's all right. I got it. Um, okay. So, um, my second assumption is this, that um, Jesus talked in parables. He told stories. And some people got it, and some people didn't get it. And the disciples one time took him aside. It's in Matthew. And the disciples said, why do you teach him parables all the time? You know, like, like there's got to be a better way to do this. And he replied in Matthew 13, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and will have an abundance. Whoever doesn't have, even what he has will be taken from him. That's why I speak to them in parables, though seeing they don't see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. He says, whoever has, and he's talking about the truth of God, okay? He's talking about spiritual truth. Whoever has spiritual truth will be given more of it. Whoever doesn't have spiritual truth, even the little they have will be taken away. So, so if you know the stories, that's not ever good enough. It's never good enough just to know about the cross and to know that the Christians say that on the third day the tomb was empty. It's never, ever enough. Because if that's all it does for you, if that's all it does, then even that will one day be taken away. Jesus teaches in parables because it requires spiritual insight. Parables are like stories that have a deeper meaning. So he'd tell the story and they're like, what does that mean? You know, and he had to explain to the disciples because even they were kind of slow, you know. Um, so my assumption is if you're here out of tradition, that some of you maybe have tuned out pastors for 20 years, you know. And I don't think I'm going to change that. But if you want to hear the word of God, then if you have ears to hear, then hear. And perhaps what you received this morning will multiply and become something amazing if you have ears to hear it. So I'll do my best to explain it, but I'm not going to pull punches, okay? So with that in mind, go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. There is a blue Bible in front of you, by the way, if you uh, need that. Hebrews is towards the end of your Bible, by the way. Um, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 3 Johns, Jude, and Revelation. Okay, so, so if you go to Revelation, the very last book, and start backing up a little bit, you'll bump into Hebrews. Okay. Uh, there's also notes in your bulletin. You can follow along that way. 
if the computer gets booted up or something miraculous happens with our projectors, you may see them up on the overhead as well. But we're not dependent on that, so uh, we're dependent on preaching the Word of God. And if there's light to read the page, we'll be okay. All right? <laughs> we'll be all right. So, by the way, all of our guests, thank you for being here. You know, this is like the right place to be on Easter. The right thing is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you are welcome here, and I hope I get to meet some of you over brunch. Uh, last year, uh, was, this is my, this is my, I've been here a year and a half now or so. Great brunch, let me tell you. Um, it is top-notch. You don't want to miss it, okay? But if mom's cooking, hers is always better, so go with mom, all right? Just, just saying that, all right? Go with mom. All right. If mom's eating here, all right. Okay, um, my question this morning is this. So Jesus died and he rose from the dead. What now? Like, where is he now and why is he there? That's my question. Where is he now and why is he there? And Hebrews 1 explains that. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he spoke to us by the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Okay, so where is he now? Well, Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Capital M, majesty, they're trying to say God. He's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Why does he get to be at the right hand of majesty? The right hand is a position of honor and authority and power. A few weeks ago, remember we, we, were, we were here and we were talking about how James and John wanted to sit on his right and left? Well, if, if you know the king of the universe, you want to be sitting right there. Now, this is the highest position. This is where Jesus is at. Maybe at the end we can say together, I'll say he is risen and you'll respond to the highest place. Because that's where he has risen. He has risen to the highest place. He's at the right hand of the majesty. Now, my question this morning then is, I'll say it again, why does Jesus get to be in the highest place? That's a question I want to answer, seeing four things about Jesus in this passage. Before I do that, let's talk about the first couple of verses here. I mean, we were only doing four verses this morning. Let's not neglect any of them. Uh, verse 1 it talks about God speaking to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. And then it says, in these last days, meaning the days we're in right now, and, and, and they started with Jesus coming, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things. So um, the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote this, but the writer of Hebrews is saying there's really two eras of history when it comes to God speaking to people. Two eras of history. Two chapters. Chapter 1 is God speaks through prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah. He, he speaks through his people, certain people that he selects to talk to other people. Okay, And then Jesus comes, and, and he is superior to the prophets. He's better than them, and he tells us things. So, so look, 
if you ever end up in a church, if I could call it a church, if you end up in a place where people worship and you get the feeling that they're more connected to the word of a person, whether it be a pastor, priest, leader, whoever, if you end up in a place like that where where, where a person has the authority to speak and then people listen to what they say, uh, you ought to run. Because... Authority comes from the Scriptures. The Son has spoken to us. There's two eras of history. Era number one, God speaks through prophets. Era number two, He speaks through Jesus. And nothing supersedes that authority, okay? Nothing can do that. Which is why anyone should get very cautious when an authority of a man or a woman supersedes what's written in here. Okay, two eras. Now, the next thing he says here is, and again, I'm just pointing it out here just so we're tracking. Uh, he's spoken to us by his son, verse 2, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. So, so the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the heir of all things. One day Jesus inherits everything. Everything. The world, the universe, the heavens. Everything is Jesus's. He gets it all. He's the heir. And the inheritance is his. And then it says, through whom he made the universe. So not only does he inherit it like an heir, but he actually made it, so he kind of deserves it. You know? If you painted a painting, it'd be your painting. It belonged to you. You know? If you built something, it's, it's yours. You made it. Jesus made the universe. It all belongs to him anyway. And one day he's going to inherit it. It all belonged to him. And every knee will bow before him because he made every knee. So every knee is going to bow. He's Jesus. He's the heir. Now, the next thing I want you to see are four reasons why Jesus gets to sit down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Why does he get the highest place? Four reasons that the writer of Hebrews gives us. Now, I call these reasons because, and if you like Greek, okay, the, the, the New Testament is written in the Greek language. And each of these reasons, that they're participles, okay? Which means they're like, they're like uh, uh, verbal nouns. They're, they're not like the main statement. The main statement here is, he sat down in verse 3. That's like subject verb, right? Regular sentence, he sat down. Verse 3, you could translate it, the Son being the radiance of God, being the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things, providing purification. All those things in Greek are pointing towards he sat down. He sat down because he's the radiance of God's glory. He sat down. All those things are pointing forward their participles, okay? I'm just telling you grammar. You don't have to know it, but um, that's the way it's working out. So knowing that, let's talk it through, okay? Four things we can get here. Why does Jesus sit down? Number one, if you have notes, you could pull them out now. It would be a nice time to write things down if you'd like. Number one is his glory. His glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I see we have our notes working. I have no idea how long it's been working, but I just noticed it. So there it is. (laughs) He's the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance. Glory. Uh, If you want a good definition for glory, uh, a good definition, one of my favorites is John Piper's definition. Uh, Glory is... The beauty of God's many perfections. You say God is love. 
And the way you experience that beautiful love, you could call that His glory. God is holy. He's perfect, completely perfect. The way you experience that, that's His glory. It's how beautiful God is. It's the shining. Radiance, actually, in this verse, is just the word brightness. Brightness. Radiance. Okay? It's not like... It's not like uh, the moon reflects the sun, right? And so the moon gives us light. It's not like that kind of light. The idea of this radiance is it's emanating from a directly from the source. It's radiating out. Jesus is the glory of God. He, he shows us God. He, 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 he radiates out from who God is. So... so I'm taking it then, the metaphor is the sun. The, the sun in the sky, right? You know how hot the sun is at the core? 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, okay? 27 million degrees. And then when you get to the, um, the outer parts of it where the, where the plasma is bubbling up and all that, 3.5 million degrees. It's a lot cooler, but you know, it's still pretty hot. <laughs> okay? It takes light and heat about eight minutes to travel from sun to earth. About eight minutes to get here. Without the sun, we wouldn't have life. We, we couldn't sustain life on this planet without it. Jesus is the glory of God. He, he radiates that beauty. It, the brightness just comes off of him. This is kind of an interesting analogy because what, what it means is, I mean, we proclaim a trinity. You know, there's, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son are one in essence, but they're still different. And so you've got the Son, and it is the Son almost being like the majesty, the, 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 the Father, and, and is radiating out the glory of the Son. The sun is the sunbeam. It's part of the sun, but it's also kind of different. Like Trinity, you know? Three in one. How do you explain that? It's a mystery. This is what the disciples said. Uh, John and John chapter 1. Can we pull up that verse? John 1, 14. The Word became flesh, meaning Jesus. Jesus became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, His beauty, His shining. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father... He came from the Father. You see it? He's, he's radiating out. The Father sends Him. As the Son sends sunlight, the Father sends the Son of God, full of grace and truth. He, he's the glory of God, and He's shining forth. Think about this. Uh, in heaven, in Revelation, there'll be no sun. There'll be no need for an artificial light. We'll have the real light. Can we bring up the verse in Revelation? The city that is the new Jerusalem, heaven, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And who's the lamp? Jesus is the lamp. So when you think about how amazing, how powerful, how bright, how incredible Jesus is, I mean... The writer of Hebrews is going for an awesome analogy. It's like the sun. You can't even look at it without damaging your eyes. I remember a solar eclipse when I was in grade school. I'll never forget it, you know. 
I went outside and I'm like, I get to look at the sun. That's so awesome. My teacher's like, you still can't look at the sun. It's still not safe. But it's an eclipse. No, you still can't do it. So she gave me these little, these little uh, glass th- glasses things with, with, with some, uh, you know, like sunglasses. And I put them on and I was able to look at the solar eclipse. So cool. But the sun is so powerful. It's so bright that you can't stare at it. And the writer of Hebrews is like, when I think of how amazing Jesus is, the best thing I can compare it to, the brightness, is the sun. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So, if he's that amazing, may we enjoy him forever. May we enjoy him forever. I mean... We ought to know more than most people of the Northwoods. If you're, if you're visiting, by the way, welcome to snow. Um, but we ought to know more than most that with spring and summer comes the brightness and the heat of the sun, and you're all looking forward to it. Yes, you've enjoyed snowmobiling, you enjoyed Christmas, and you enjoyed maybe throwing some snowballs or making a snowman here and there. But we're done now, right? I mean, we're just, it's got to be over, right? Uh We long for basking in the sun. And one day we will do that forever. And will it ever get old? I think not. It's amazing. And like the sun sustains life, so does Jesus sustain life. I'll I'll get there though. We'll get there. Um, Number two then. Number two. Jesus deserves to sit down at the right hand of majesty because of his glory. Secondly, because of his essence. His essence. He is the exact representation of God's being. Representation is, uh, comes from the Greek word character. It's not referring to morality in this case. It's referring to an etching or an engraving. It's referring to a tool that would make a stamp in clay or, or, or stamp on a wax seal. It, it's making a perfect imprint every single time. And this verse is saying, Jesus at his core is the exact representation of who God is. Exactly. The word character. Um, I once was speaking to a um, Jehovah's Witness and discussing Jesus' divinity because they don't believe he is God. And uh, the hard thing is they don't want to look at our Bible. Uh, They would rather look at the um, New World Translation with its corruptions and the changes they've made to that translation from the Greek. But the fun thing is I I could take their translation, as wrong as it is, I could open to Hebrews chapter 1 and read that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. I said, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean Jesus is God. And I said, well, I said, what does exact mean? Well, it doesn't mean exact. I mean, I'm like, who am I talking with here? You know, like, are, are you reading what's on the page? This is who Jesus is. He is God, the exact. So if you take a stamp, it's going to stamp the same every single time. And Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God. That's who he is at his core. And sometimes I despair of, uh, just admit, uh, one of them came to my door the other day to, to announce Easter and things, and I just, I, I didn't speak. Maybe I was in my pajamas, I didn't want to be out there speaking, but you know, that's always a little embarrassing. 
But, um, but I get this kind of despair, like, I know I'm going to show them the Scriptures, and they're going to read that Jesus is who He says He is, and they're not going to accept it. Beware any, any church, any organization, anything that tries to bring Jesus down a level or two. He's exalted to the highest place, and you better get that feeling wherever you worship. There's no higher place. He's the exact representation of God's being. Now, this is pretty cool, too, because um, uh, think about it. You that grew up in Sunday school and you know your Old Testament stories, if I was to ask you to tell me what God is like, only based on the Old Testament, you may not use Jesus in this. If I said, just tell me what God is like, you may only use the Old Testament. What would you say to me? Some of you would say, I remember those stories where the earth opened up and swallowed up the false prophets, you know, or the false priests of Israel. You'd say, I remember the flood, you know, God's going to wipe out the earth and start over again. And you would be thinking about, you'd rightly be thinking about the wrath of God, His justice, His holiness. I remember the story where the Ark of the Covenant's on a cart, and that guy reaches out, and then the cart's kind of tipsy, and the guy reaches out to steady the Ark, and he dies right there, you know. I mean, that's real. Some of you would say, I remember when God wanted to wipe out Israel for worshiping a golden calf who supposedly brought them out of Egypt, and Moses pleaded with God saying, please don't wipe them out, and God said, I will not. He relented on his wrath. I remember the God who, who said to Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them to wipe out the city. Jonah does it, and then God says, good, they've repented, now I'm not going to wipe them out. What's that? You know, his love. Some of you would say, I remember the psalm that says his love endures forever over and over and over and over again. You read the psalmist, it's every single time, every line, his love endures forever. And both of you would be right. You see this heavy wrath, justice part. You see this love, this intense love of God. But with Jesus, you see God as he interacts as a human being with other human beings. It's amazing what Jesus brings to the table when you consider how you view God. I mean, it's cliche, right, to say, you know, WWJD, and we used to wear the bracelets, I used to wear the bracelets, it used to be cool. Um, now it's not so much anymore. But, but the cool thing about that whole thing is, you're able to say, what would Jesus do in a particular situation where Someone hates him and wants him to die. Oh, well, Jesus would forgive that person. <laughs> what would Jesus do if, if someone was caught in adultery and, and we want to, like, condemn this person? Jesus would defend them and tell them to go sin no more. You know, it's God with flesh on. We like saying that, and that's what, who Jesus is. He is the exact representation of God's being. And if that is the case, then let us have confidence in him forever. Let us have confidence in him forever. Don't ever doubt. Don't let anyone tell you Jesus is not who he said he is or, you know, Jesus' divinity was invented at a council hundreds of years after. No, no, that's not the case. The Bible declares Jesus is God. End of story. I mean, you could read somebody that writes fictional accounts about councils and saying Jesus is this or that, but whatever, we stand on the Bible. 
and the Bible claims Jesus' divinity, his deity. Okay, so um, the first two points are all about who Jesus is, right? Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, hotter than the sun. Jesus is the exact representation of, his be- of, of God's being. If you see Jesus, you see the Father, right? That's what Jesus, if you see me, you've seen the Father. The second two points are what he's done. What he's done, okay? So check those out. Uh, number three is his provision. His provision. Uh, it says, he sustains all things by his powerful word. He sustains all things by his powerful word. I mean, think about that. Uh, He's holding the universe together by what he says. Doesn't that go against, like, the way we think today with science? I'm not saying the Bible's anti-science. It's not. The Bible is also not a scientific textbook. It's not a science book. But surely this is saying that... Beyond science, before, before you start talking about gravity, before you start talking about molecules and protons and electrons and neutrons, before you start talking about physics, and I hated physics, by the way, just putting it out there. I only got through it because my friends were smarter than me and helped me with my homework. Um, I'm not a science guy, I get it, but some of it's really cool. Like reading about the sun was really cool this week to see all those things. Um, Beyond the science, there is a God who holds the universe together. We start there. We don't start with gravity. We don't start with the atom. We don't start with the laws of thermodynamics. We don't start there. We start with Jesus who made it and holds it together. Because if he didn't, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't exist if he didn't want you to exist. You wouldn't. That's where we start. We have to start there. And so I'm not saying the Bible and the science are fighting. I'm only saying, where do we start first? And the writer of Hebrews declares that Jesus holds all together. What does that mean to you and me? I think one thing we ought to consider then is, if Jesus holds everything together by the power of his word, we can stand boldly in him. We can stand. We sang that this morning. Here in the, it's here in the power of Christ, I stand. You think about that. If Jesus wants you to stand in the face of people who don't like you, if Jesus wants you to stand in the face of the sickness that ravages your body, if Jesus wants you to stand in the face of an enemy and love that person back, if Jesus wants you to spend your life serving him somewhere completely out of this country, any of those scenarios you have the power to do because if he tells you to do it, his word will give you the power to do it. If Jesus wants you to resist sin and and live a, a life that pleases him, if he calls you to that like he does all of us Christians, you better believe he can give us the power to do it because his word holds the universe together. Do you have that kind of boldness in him? Do you know how strong he is? That when he tells you to stand, you can stand with anything coming at you. That's the sun.
finally, finally, the reason Jesus is able to sit down at the right hand of majesty is that he provided, he provided purification for our sins. His sacrifice then, his sacrifice. Uh, Hebrews 10.12, we can pull that up. Hebrews 10.12. When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We're all growing in our holiness, those who believe in Christ. We're supposed to be becoming more like him. But he's already made us perfect forever. He's made us perfect forever. Now think about that. That connects to his sitting down. Why does Jesus sit? Because the work is over. The work is done. I mean... I get I sometimes I, I work throughout the day, right? And and I'm and I'm studying or I'm talking to people, I'm visiting somebody, uh, then I get home and we're doing dinner and, and then um and then after that it's like homework time, helping the kids with that. And then like eight o'clock rolls around and it's about time for the kids to get in bed and they get in bed, and then it's like my time, Christy's time. You know, we just get to hang out. You know, no kids, they're all in bed. Sometimes though as I'm sitting there on the sofa, heading for oblivion, you know, you know that feeling. Sometimes I hear the call coming from the bedroom, right? There's something else my kids need, and I'm not saying that's bad. My, my kids need me, and I'm always there. But sometimes at the end of the day, you think the work is finished, and the work is not finished, right? There is one more thing. And it's like I get up and like, oh, come on, you know. Sorry, Derek, it's, 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 that's the way I feel. I'm sorry. It's, it's selfish. You're shaking your head. I know, I know. I'm not perfect. I'm tired. <laughs> um, why is Jesus able to sit down? Because he's done, right? He's done. He died for sins. He died to make you pure. You know, you, it's, it's completed. You're made perfect forever. Forever. It's done. Nothing else needs to be added to it. So he's able to sit. And you don't have to say, Jesus, will you forgive me this time? Because he will every time. It's already done. He already did it. He's sitting there. You can keep asking for it because it's always there. You are forgiven forever. Forever. And so he sits. He sits. So would you live in his purity forever? You know, I mean, would you enjoy it now? Fight sin Fight for the purity of your heart and then enjoy that purity forever in heaven. I'm at the end. I want to close with a word from Romans and hopefully pull all of this together. I hope that this morning when you think about Jesus being raised from the dead, he was also raised to the highest place. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. Raised to the highest place. He was exalted by God the Father. And that's where he is now. This is what Romans says. I'd like Romans to have the final word here because it's, it's a good word. Now the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That is, 
If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, and that he was raised from the dead, if you've given your life to him as the savior of your, of your own life, then the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Would you just think about that for a second? I mean, that verse comes alive when you read Hebrews chapter 1, written by different people from what we understand, but the way those things overlap is just so beautiful. Would you just look at that? God says, the Spirit says, the Spirit of God says, you are God's children. And if you're a child in the family of God, that means you get an inheritance. You're an heir. What do you get? What does the will say? Let's read about the inheritance. Well, you get God. You get to inherit God, which makes him the most valuable treasure in the universe. And that's what you get. You are also, I love this, co-heirs with Christ. Remember what we said at the beginning? Jesus will inherit the earth, he'll inherit the heavens, he'll inherit everything, it all belongs to him, he made it. As we looked at uh, earlier this month, you're united to Christ. So you get all that stuff too. I mean, come on. I get what Jesus gets. And, and I didn't even have to go through what he went through, but because I'm united to him, I get it. I get all of that. The universe and more. And then he says, uh, if indeed, you've got, you got to love the if statement, okay? I mean, you just, you got to, there it is. If, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may also share in his glory. The assumption is the things that Jesus went through in this life should be happening to us too. Somebody ought to be making fun of you for your faith. Somebody should be. I know nobody's going to put nails in your hands and feet because we don't live in that kind of a country, and I'm thankful for it. But somebody be better be pushing back against you. And you should be scratching your head going, I don't understand why I'm just loving them and telling them the truth. Not in a mean way, not in a God hates you and you're going to hell sort of way. I mean, that, that whatever, you know, but God loves you and wants to save you from hell. In that kind of way, we declare God's love for people. There should be some pushback somewhere. We're sharing in his sufferings. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Um, and then verse 18. You've got to love this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Think about that. Whatever you're suffering with right now, whatever that is, whatever someone's saying to you, doing to you, opposing you, whatever you have going on in your body, whatever, whatever's happening right now that's painful and a trial to you, none of that's worth comparing to the glory of the sun and, and its 27 million degree heat that somehow that translates into what we're going to receive in heaven. That kind of glory is going to be revealed in us. I don't understand that, but I know it's huge and powerful, and it's going to be ours. And it's like, whatever happens to you now, 
it's not even worth comparing in the same breath to what you're going to get in the next life. There's no comparison point. I'm not saying we shouldn't be compassionate when people suffer. We should be the most compassionate people. We should. Because we know the suffering of a Savior. We should be compassionate. But what Paul's getting at there is, wait till you see what happens next. Wait till you see Jesus in all of his glory, shining like 27 million degree heat. And you're able to withstand it because you're united to him. I mean, that is amazing. That is amazing. He is amazing. So I've come to the end. And uh, I just want to say to you, maybe today is the day where you've heard his voice. You know, maybe today is it. And maybe today wasn't one of those parables that just kind of, I didn't understand it, whatever, I'm walking out. Maybe today you got it. And you heard God saying something in your soul about how he wants you. You've heard Jesus say he died for you. Now he wants your life. You know? He wants your life. He wants you, all of you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes now? If you have never given your heart to Jesus... And you've heard his voice speaking to you. Not Pastor Niall's voice. Please take mine out of the equation. But somewhere in the middle of all this, during worship, during the dramas, during the sermon, but somewhere in the middle of all this, in the reading of Scripture, you heard Jesus say, I want you, I died for you, I love you. Would you confess your sins to me? Would you say that you need need this salvation and I will give it to you because I paid for it? One sacrifice for sins. He died for you. He paid the price. So you don't have to go to hell. He suffered hell. And if that's you and you wish to respond and pray this morning, would you look up at me and we will pray together? If that's you and you want to pray this morning. I see you. I see two of you. Three and four. Five of you. All right. The five or so that responded, or more, that I did not see. Um, I want to pray. I want to I give, you, give you some words to say, hopefully, what's going on in your heart. If it's not going on in your heart, then praying this prayer won't do anything. But if it is going on in your heart, then this matters. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, today I heard you loud and clear. You want all of me. You want my life. I belong to you because you made me. (laughs) And so, and so, I believe that you died on a cross to pay for all of my mistakes. To purify me from all of the dirt in my soul. And I believe you raised from the dead by the power of God raising you up. And so I'm giving my life to you now. Thank you for saving me. And now help me to live that life that was talked about in that verse in Romans. 
even though I suffer, even though people push back, even though I don't understand everything about this whole thing, help me stand in what I know to be true of you, Jesus. You are everything. In your name I pray this. Amen. To you that prayed, I want to...